the logic of last-minute border closures, justice by prank call, and there's never anything on what we have enjoyed watching, listening to and reading this year. Hello and welcome to The Late Edition. I'm Andrew Muller, joined today by Tom Edwards and Augustin Machelari. But first, after months, indeed years, of faffery, the UK and the EU have come to some sort of terms over the trading relationship between the two once the transition period ends on December 31st, giving countless businesses on both sides of the channel the entire Christmas break to adjust their operations. The fine print is being scrutinised even as we speak, and we will be following this up in coming days. Anyway, let's start this evening by discussing the absolutely inevitable with specific reference to today's announcement by UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock that there's another variant of COVID-19 at large, this one apparently on the march from South Africa. Here is Hancock speaking earlier. We've seen case rates rise in some of the places close to where the current Tier 4 restrictions are, in places like East Anglia, where we've seen a significant number of the new variant and we've seen case rates rise sharply. It is therefore necessary to put more of the east and southeast of England into tier four. That was Matt Hancock speaking earlier. Tom, it's really hard to know where to start at this point. We, I, I thought one mutant variation rampaging strain of COVID-19 would probably see us through to the new year, but now there's at least one more. Yeah, and they're coming from South Africa. They're they're everywhere and nowhere and they spread faster. Uh, I'm immediately leaping forwards and looking for positives to come out of what has been another incredibly (laughs) negative day. This will be fun. Do go on. Let me me explain myself. Um, Early on in this crisis when people were discussing the actual sort of epidemiology, the the virology, the, the actual mechanics by which these kinds of things happen... Not that we've seen something on this scale for more than a century. Yes, indeed. Um, they talked about how the increase uh, in the, at the the rate of transmission often accompanies the virus becoming less um, severely impactful. And I know this is something that uh, our health and science correspondent, Chris Smith, has often, t- so. has, has often talked about, which is that the raison d'etre of a virus is to survive and it by its nature needs to become uh, less less damaging to its hosts uh, and that often accompanies it becoming more effective at uh, at spreading so i'm here's the positive spin i'm looking at this as an acceleration of that process coming serendipitously or unfortunately depending on your worldview at the same time as we begin to roll out the various vaccines variously around the world so the way i'm choosing to look at it andrew is that this will see us accelerate this process uh, early into 2021 of course the darkness will be uh, the night will be darkest before the dawn that's true but i would anticipate seeing significant progress on this front by early summer uh, Augustine, are you as overjoyed by this development as Tom appears to be? Yeah, you know, I think there is some reason to be cheerful. I've heard from an acquaintance in the police force here in the UK that the uh, guidelines unofficially have shifted internally where before uh, the police maybe weren't policing lockdowns quite as uh ruthlessly as they might have done they've now been informed that actually tier four is something that they do need to take very seriously now that could speak to the severity of the virus conversely it could speak to the need 
to make sure essentially that people remain safe until they can get the vaccine. I do think that an increased lockdown is going to uh, is going to mean that the people who might otherwise have caught it in the kind of last days, people have drawn comparisons between the last bombs to fall on London during the Second World War and uh, and and catching the virus now when when a vaccine is so close to being accessible. I wonder if that is going to keep them uh, protected, insulated from it, and and that actually, if it might be in some respects a net positive, that there is uh, a, a really, really terrible and um, worrying number of people who are currently ill, but that in the long run, uh, more people will be saved. I mean, that's the only way that I can see any hope for it. And you know, in the in the in the press conference we heard earlier on today. Uh, one of the experts speaking said that there was no evidence that the vaccine wouldn't work and that, in fact, we should take this as a good sign because it, if there's no evidence that it won't, that suggests that it will. And even though that's a slightly uh, twisted <laughs> formulation, I, 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 I'm inclined to take, take, take little morsels of hope like that where I can get them at the moment. Well, let's move along slightly on the morsel of hope front because the UK is slightly less cut off from the world than it was this time yesterday, but only slightly. France will now admit arrivals from the UK if they have tested negative for COVID-19, though the backlog is sufficiently considered that this will be little consolation to the thousands of truck drivers who will be spending Christmas on an airport runway in Kent. Here is Monocle's transport correspondent Gabriel Lee speaking on The Globalist earlier. Of course, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a specialist in this area, but it seems remarkably like the reaction back in the early days of the pandemic when we really didn't know anything. And then you could imagine a little more why countries would want to say, OK, let's pull up the drawbridge and, and stop people moving. Now, you would think that there would have been at least a more coordinated and seemingly sort of thought through response. It just seems like a repeat of the same sort of thing. We don't know, so let's close up the borders and also let's close them six hours from now. So it creates a run at the airport. So it creates people piling onto trains. So it creates total chaos and people gathering together, potentially spreading infections more. Mm. So it just doesn't seem like a very well thought through response. And there also seem to have been some rather bizarre reactions. I mean, repatriating citizens, for instance. Right. We saw some examples of, you know, travel bans going into effect at midnight. So, for example, the, the Polish airline Lot, they sent two wide-body aircraft to London to pick up Polish citizens, uh, people that needed to get out before the thing closed down. And that just seems like a very strange idea. If the idea is to stop the spread of this potentially dangerous new strain, then then that would seem to be a, a strange way to do it. Uh, Augustine, the border closures we've seen uh, by France and indeed by dozens of other countries declaring uh, the entire population of the United Kingdom persona non grata, do they strike you as actually strategic or symbolic? Because there surely can't be any way that this new variant isn't already at large on the continent, can there? Well, no, I don't think they can, uh, Andrew. It's already been detected in Italy, Denmark and France. I guess the only way to look at it is that so far, uh, well, we just passed a really grim milestone, half a million COVID deaths in Europe, which makes it the the kind of worst affected territory, I think, technically. Um, and I guess that this sort of scramble was, you know, maybe partly for the optics, but I think also it, it functioned to buy a bit of time. It bought some negotiating space. You know, as, as you mentioned in your introduction there, France has reopened uh, or will be reopening uh, the border to uh, residents uh, and essential uh, travellers like like the uh, truckers who are, who are trapped at Dover, to whom my heart really does go out because that is just the most abject situation, I think, down there. Um, 
but you know they they've opened the border with and got concessions in return the the truckers will be tested uh and so on so i guess they're trying to limit the uh the risk i mean all of this is about limiting risk isn't it and at the end of the day you know it seems highly unlikely to me that if this uh new strain of the virus really is 70% more infectious because there has also been suggestion from scientists that uh part of the spike may also be uh you may also be attributable to uh behavior so i, I you know it, it's not a complete certainty although the who has said that the new strain shows substantial evidence uh in severity of transmission so so you know, it's kind of as yet uh, not completely confirmed that it's worse. But if indeed it does turn out to be worse in the sense that it's more transmissible, then presumably a few cases is very quickly going to turn into a lot of cases. And yes, it will already be in, in, in continental Europe. Tom, a great deal of this year has almost read like something of a be careful what you wish for parable directed in the direction of uh, Brexiters. Um, you know, this was a populist insurrection in theory uh, largely um, rallied around the idea of sovereignty and establishing control of one's borders and so forth. And yet here we are, this is something that the UK, which has left the EU over this issue, has signally failed to do, i.e. control its borders at a moment when it very arguably really needed to, whereas the rest of the European Union, almost none of which are actually islands, have managed to control their borders, and they did it pretty much by issuing a press release. Almost as if the entire premise was absolute twaddle from the off. Well, and it's almost as if the UK government has been demonstrably more incompetent than any other, including any other similar country in Western Europe, which I think is the case. Um, Look, it's difficult, isn't it? I think it, it seems from what we're hearing this evening that, you know, a trade deal will at least be done. So that mitigates perhaps against the worst excesses of, of you know, bre- the, the, the uh, no deal Brexit. One of the things that does concern me quite deeply about the pandemic in strictly political terms domestically here within the UK borders is the extent to which the government and actually more the, the, the pro-Brexit lobby will attribute the problems that we run into into 2021, even if a deal is done in time, uh, and they'll attribute those problems to the pandemic and say, well, yes, yes, you see, it's not about Brexit. All of these issues are because of the pandemic. And, you know, what could we do? That that came at us from from, from nowhere. So it, it's, it, it's going to be the new communism, isn't it? Well, it, it, so. it? It can't be the idea that it was fault. It was it was all about the implementation or it, about and foreigners it's the timing, or and it's, fifth columnists. It's the or, timing and it's the other 27, you know, not being accommodating. And it's about Macron being, you know, aggress- aggressively nationalistic in his, in his policy. All of these things which are completely spurious. Um, but yeah, look, I think one of the only uh, ways to deal with a, a, a pandemic, a true global crisis on this kind of scale that has this kind of impact uh, is to adopt immediately and meaningfully a collegiate approach to collaborate, to share your resources, to share your information, uh, to share best practice, to share your scientific expertise. And we're still in this bizarre situation where uh, we talked about this earlier today, Andrew, where, you know, the UK is highlighting its excellence in certain areas, diagnostics and its mastery of genome and in certain areas of cutting, cutting edge science. But unfortunately, it's then demonstratively impotent in terms of making policy or affecting any sort of change to take that great science on board. 
it's exposed all of the uh, the Brexit sort of uh, argument that's risen to this crescendo this year because of the imminent deadline and then the pandemic. It's just showcasing. It's it's sad. It's it's what's good and what is so awful about this country at the moment. Uh, Augustine, what do you think? Because again, it's it's part of the the multi level ironies that have been piled up on Britain this year. That Brexit was all about reasserting the nation state, and at the time when that mattered, Britain didn't do it. Whereas all these other European countries who seem to said, "Yeah, we're a bit over that whole nation state thing," absolutely reasserted the nation state when it was necessary to do it. Mm, Yeah, I mean, what I find kind of interesting and what I wonder about a little bit here is the kind of is what this sort of means for the for the projects of of, of global globalization, you know, more more broadly Um, here in Europe, as I said earlier, you know, we've seen this horrendous half a million um, deaths uh, attributed to COVID COVID figure um, come and go. Meanwhile, in 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 Wuhan, uh, you know, nightclubs are open again. Um, there's demonstrably an effective methodology to contain to curtail the transmission of this virus. You know, it has been done in across the world. Places just you know have been hit very hard by it, but have reacted quickly and effectively. And yes, there are questions around civil liberties. There are questions around post-communist or communist states. There are, f- are questions around sort of surveillance. All of which. Um, maybe need to be examined a bit more closely. But, you know, Tom was mentioning the kind of the fact that this presents itself as an opportunity for a multinational sort of solution. And and multinational organisations like the WHO have been tested and arguably failed. And so what we see is this kind of descent into sovereignty but one that is is hopeless it's not it's not a it's not a, it's not a happy kind of sovereignty it's it's a sad one that's resulted in 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 thousands hundreds of thousands of excess deaths very worrying oh, as we have been discussing 2020 has been a bad year on a number of fronts and because of that has also been a rough ride for those news stories which in less fraught times would have consumed global attention for weeks one such is the attempted murder in august of Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny, who, like a statistically interesting proportion of critics of Vladimir Putin, came into contact with a potentially fatal toxin. There has now been a bizarre punchline to this, in which Navalny himself prank called, and indeed had a conversation with, one of his would-be assassins. Well, earlier, Monocle's Georgina Godwin asked Russia analyst Stephen Diel whether the revelations contained in this conversation might dampen the Russian state's enthusiasm for such measures? No, unfortunately it doesn't, because the FSB, the Russian services, they don't care if people know what they're doing. It makes people more worried. One of the reasons, again, for using poison is any oligarch around the world, anyone who's upset the Kremlin, knows that there is this nasty group of people around there with a nasty method of trying to kill them. I think one of the most frightening things, too, was that when questioned at the press conference last week, Putin's press conference, which has you know, had half the number of viewers as Navalny's video, he actually said that um, if it was us, we'd have done it properly. Just imagine if any member, any leader of the Western world had made a comment like that, it would have been headlines around the world. Russia has now become such a rogue state that people just, oh, okay, he said that. You know, this is a terrible thing, a frightening thing for him to say. And unfortunately, it says an awful lot about Putin's Russia.
Uh, it was a bizarre statement, Tom, by Vladimir Putin, but often his statements are. But but what the wink Putin was tipping there was he's actually kind of admitting the point that the reason that you attempt to bump off your opponents in these absurd and Baroque ways is so everybody knows that you're doing it. Because if you are someone let's say, like Vladimir Putin, with the entire apparatus of a reasonably advanced state at your disposal, and there is somebody in particular you do wish to be rid of, it's probably pretty easy to do that relatively unobtrusively and quietly. You put on a stunt like this so everybody knows you did it. Uh, absolutely. And, and it's funny because then the two sides play the same game. Navalny gets loads of uh, focus to his videos uh, and the uh, coverage of the calls. It, every detail of this, as you said, broke. I mean, it's theatrical. It's it is. Listen, as Stephen said, it's not funny. But there's something comedic. The language, this idea of you know Novichoking to the codpiece. It's, it's utterly. <laughs> I mean, it is. It, it draws a laugh. It's 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 hilarious. Poisoned underpants. This goes far beyond any. You know, Georgie Markov or Castro's exploding cigars. It's utterly ridiculous. But the theatre is part of it. And it is this extraordinary sort of, you know, theatrical interplay between, you know, good and good, good and evil. If it, if it was the plot of a Star Wars film, you wouldn't bat an eyelid. It's, it's, we, we it's have, bizarre. We have talked about this with Stephen before, I believe, reflecting on his time reporting from Russia. And there is a not small part of Russian covert operations, which basically just amount to being jerks. All the stuff of breaking regularly into people's apartments and just moving their stuff around. Yeah. And, and you know, emptying cereal packets. So you leave a frustratingly small <laughs> amount left or, you know, ensuring that a rodent infestation periodically returns every time someone's out of town. It, it's pure mischief making. And I wonder whether some of this sort of, you know, borderline comedic theatrical behaviour somehow serves to do two things. One, to capture valuable column inches and the command of people's attention, but also st- maybe somehow to paper over the really serious subterfuge. And yeah, if you can theatrically fail to bump off a spy in Salisbury or a dissident in, uh, you know, part of the motherland, maybe then people won't ask questions about more, I don't know what you'd call it, procedural run-of-the-mill assassinations. It's an utterly bizarre thing to even countenance, but it doesn't seem to be unreasonable in Putin's Russia. I mean, it, it, it is clear, uh, Augustine, in both the case of Alexei Navalny and the Salisbury poisonings to which Tom alluded, that the, the fact that the, well, that most of the targets of those survived was not out of anything that the Russians did on purpose. They were clearly uh, intending to kill their targets. Um, I I always just keep coming back to the same question where Russia's concerned, Augustine, which is why don't they just knock it off? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, we've seen... uh, So you'll all remember the kind of... um, the sort of hysteria post-2016 Donald Trump elected uh, to the highest office in America, all of that, you know, I think that... and, and, And this suggestion that there was... Russian involvement, that the Russians swung it. And now, you know, I think consensus generally is that Putin's real success in 2016 was in making the world think that he'd swung the elections. You know, it's performance of power. Um, in the same way, you know, Tom, Tom, Tom asked what the kind of game was with the mystery, uh, the, the mischief, sorry. And, and I suppose it's that, well, it, 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 it projects a kind of power and... Uh, and inspires a kind of fear 
that really outweighs actually um, not just the sort of force of Russia, but also the domestic issues. You know, I saw a, a chart earlier today that sort of indicated that in this year, 2020, as, as a consequence of, of COVID, you know, domestically, Russia's death rate has has gone back to what it was 10 years ago. You know, COVID-19 has killed so many people that it's eradicated a decade of gains in, in the average life expectancy and the mortality rate of the country. Um, and that's really awful, isn't it? So what do you do to distract people from the fact that poor governance is running a country into the ground? Well, you could do two things, couldn't you? You could either uh, try to establish better governance, that means that people aren't suffering in that way, or you can distract them by uh, indulging in this kind of crazy performative dictatorship. Um, Vladislav Surkov is a name that comes up a, a lot around this sort of politics. Until this year, he was the chief advisor to Putin. And Peter Pomerantsev, uh, who we've uh, welcomed onto Monocle 24 before, and Adam Curtis, the British documentarian, both claim that he's kind of constructed this mad uh, theatre of politics. That, you know, it's been referred to as a postmodern dictatorship. And I guess it serves a very clear purpose, which is just in, in, in keeping people distracted from the nitty gritty, arguably the boring bits of, uh, of geopolitics, which is governance, which is just making sure the rubbish gets collected, which is making sure that people don't die if a terrible pandemic sweeps the country. Um, I also think, you know, specifically on the mischief making and the, the nature of this kind of crazy assassination attempt, which does sound like something out of a bad uh, airport novel, that, you know, maybe what we haven't asked quite enough in recent years is the extent to which life really does imitate art. I'm kind of interested in the creeping infiltration of popular culture tropes and imagery and the visual language of Hollywood cinema into geopolitics. And I think it's something that we saw around the really ghastly uh, campaign of terror that the Islamic State ran with its decapitation videos, where the production values of these videos were ludicrously good. You know, <clears throat> they looked like something that had been lifted straight from a kind of action thriller film made in Hollywood, except that they were real. And in the same way, this kind of crazy, wacky assassination attempt does sound like something out of James Bond. And I just wonder, you know, is, is that because actually the tropes of popular culture are kind of in this weird, perverse way, bleeding back into geopolitics, informing, you know, international policy, giving dictators ideas about how they might like to prosecute their horrible, oppressive crimes? Well, moving along on the subject of tropes of popular culture, and yet trying to conclude today's show on as festive a note as possible, and there is an agonising grinding of the gears for which I apologise. Uh, the Christmas number one here in the UK is not what it once was. It used to be ruthlessly contested by artists and labels alike and was both an indication and a guarantee of thumping record sales. Now that nobody much buys records anymore, it means less than it did but retains a symbolic potence, which is why a campaign is afoot to elevate a discourteous song about Boris Johnson Johnson to the top of the pops. Neither the title nor the name of the artist are fit for broadcast on a family station such as Monocle 24, however, and so I am going to ask you both, Tom and Augustine, for your cultural highlights of um, 2020, but 
damn it, given that I'm sitting here, I'm going to name mine first. Um, Tom, you asked me a couple of weeks ago, in fact, what was the one song I'd listened to most in 2020? And it was, and it turned out to be rather sadly timely, um, a song by Steve Earle called Fastest Man Alive, which was a homage to the great, and as it shortly afterwards turned out, late uh, test pilot Chuck Yeager. Um, And it was a song I played a lot just because it made me laugh every time I heard it. It's this great piece of swaggering Americana boogie, um, you know, narrating the life of Chuck Yeager as this great all-American badass. And and it did work rather beautifully as a a bed to our obituary for Yeager. Um, But I do also want to name the two albums that my favourite band in the entire world released this year, which... um, well, one album was called uh, The Unraveling. The other one was called The New OK. You can kind of see what they did there, uh, bookending the year. That's a band called Drive-By Truckers, uh, whose singer Patterson Hood did appear on the foreign desk uh, this year. Uh, that was his second appearance, in fact. We've only ever had one rock star on the foreign desk, <laughs> but he's been on twice. Uh, but they remain my, my favourite band in the entire world, and uh, they are on rare form. And the second album, despite the fact that the members of the group live all over the United States and haven't actually seen each other all year, actually a surprisingly coherent record. <laughs> well, I, but what's funny for me is how so so many of the cultural offerings, obviously this is the time of year where you read all of the uh, literary supplements, uh, books of the year, and I, I have been stunned, Andrew, the amount of you know, very eminent minds who said, yeah, I haven't read any books that were published this year, but I did go back to dot, 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 insert name of previous cultural happening here. Uh, Are you going to claim right now, Tom, that you are one of those eminent minds? Absolutely, Andrew. (laughs) And let me go on. No, it's been the year of, you know, the archive uh, review. It's been the year of God, I haven't watched the dot, dot, dot. And all of these things, I I literally watched the right stuff again Precisely it's after film. Our, it's a great film. As well as well as listening to that Steve L record, I then watched that. It's been the year where I've kind of gone back. I don't know if it's because I'm hankering after some halcyon days that never really existed, whether I've become wistful and nostalgic in my dotage, uh, or whether I wonder the inability, exactly as you said, Andrew, of even the greats to get together with their usual uh, collaborators and creative sparring partners has maybe put a bit of a dampener on creative presses. We talked often about, you know, in straightened times, you see a real uptick in great uh, comedy and satire and writing and music in the That's often, often very contingent on people being able to go out and have a few drinks together. Well, this is it. So <laughs> I think 2021, one of the legion things I'm looking forward to about the new year uh, is to get back to that when people can get together and, and kick these things around. Augustine, we were discussing off air yesterday and probably just as well your fondness for the Anti-Nowhere League. Have, have, you, have you spent the, the year of lockdown entirely immersed in angry, nihilistic 1980s punk rock? Well, as it, as it happens, uh, Andrew... <laughs> No, that was that was 2019. So, you know, going through my 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 uh my Spotify uh year in review was actually a kind of a bum out um both literally and in terms of, you know, the music that I was listening to. Last year was the year of Fugazi for me. Um this year was apparently the year of kind of drone folk revival. There was a little bit of I think I think Bill Callahan's album Shepherd in a Sheepskin Vest, which I think came out this year, maybe featured. In terms of literature and film and TV, I've 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 straddled the line. I've dipped into the classics per Tom Edwards. Um I never watched The Sopranos the first time it came out. And I and that's obviously, you know, it's not often that you find yourself with forty or fifty hours 
uh, spare. So I've kind of been working my way through that. I also watched Get Shorty, which I kind of couldn't believe I'd never seen before. That was great. Um, I've read some classics. I found it hard to concentrate. One book that I'm looking for uh, that I think listeners should keep an eye out for is called Fake Accounts by Lauren Euler. Um, That'll be out very early in the new year. And I think it'll be divisive, but it's really interesting. One person who has had an interesting reappraisal that I think is worth noting before we wrap it up is H.P. Lovecraft, who is obviously, uh, you know, a a master of uh, sort of sci-fi horror. He's been really influential. Uh, Films like The Thing owe a lot to H.P. Lovecraft. But he was also, you know, he held truly, truly aberrant views. So earlier this year, a new Nick Cage film came out called Colour Out of Space, which is really wild and great fun and um, quite psychedelic. But then H.P. Lovecraft, and that's based on an H.P. Lovecraft story, but then his legacy has kind of been re-examined by an excellent TV series called Lovecraft Country. Um, You know, Lovecraft himself was very, very racist. This is a film uh, with an almost exclusively, a series with an almost exclusively African-American cast that deals with uh, the racism of sort of 50s America. Um, That's one of the kind of key themes and, and filters it through the prism of Lovecraft's kind of incredible worlds and monsters that he created but then also critiques the the awful views he held so i think that was i think that was good and I, you know i do think actually um there's been some great stuff out this year obviously a lot of the tv was made in 2019 and then released in 2020 but i don't think that it's been so 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 culturally barren um and i and i think next year will be even better although i'm not looking forward to the tranche of covid novels that are no doubt on their way no there will be many of them and they will all be awful and with that uh, warning to the future that is all for today's late edition a big thank you to tom edwards here in london and augustin machilari not in london to all our editors today and to our studio manager maylee evans i'm andrew muller the late edition returns tomorrow at 2100 london time until then goodbye and thanks for being with us Bye.